Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, well, welcome to the clinic here at the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. As always, I want to thank all of our listeners for being a part of our family here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Um, we have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about some intense um, things that happened recently. Um, so to all the listeners, if you're a little bit, uh, uh, you know, weak of heart or anything like that, we are going to be talking about what's the difference between possession versus psychosis. And there was a recent article that came out of a inmate, I think it was a couple weeks ago, uh, who actually killed his cellmate in a very gruesome way. Uh, so we might be talking about some gruesome details just to let our audience know beforehand. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. So we have a great show. So we're protected by Our Lady. Um, and we will start with the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, to our audience, before we get into the show, um, let's not forget, coming up, it should be this weekend, Catholic Men's Conference, June 12th. Uh, we're going to have Jesse Romero and Eddie Chavez doing a live uh, conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. So if you haven't registered for that, go ahead and register. It should be a really, really good conference, really good uplifting stories to help us really ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a Catholic man? And how can I best follow that? There will be a special video appearance by J Bishop uh, Joseph Strickland. So that's always exciting. Uh, J Bishop Strickland has always been uh, a great promoter of following the faith, of giving us the true teachings of the magisterium. And I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Interestingly enough, I have my coffee mug here for when we do our coffee and therapy, which will be early uh, in this show. Um, and people keep asking me, well, what does your coffee mug say? Um, and what it says here, I think this is appropriate with our Catholic Men's Conference coming up, is the sheep pretend the wolf will never come. 
but the sheepdog lives for that day. And if you don't know what that means, I think if you listen and go to the, you know, listen live to the Catholic Men's Conference or if you attend the Catholic Men's Conference, you're going to understand what it means to be a sheepdog. It really uh, speaks to if we are going to be Catholic men, we have to understand our role as protectors, as people who need to understand our faith, especially to protect our families spiritually um, and to really be an example so that our children will grow up understanding that. Getting into today's show, um, interesting topic because I had a few people come up and uh, ask me, well, Dr. Sandoval, what do you think about this? What happened? Um, There was an article that said, you know, a California, let me just read a little bit of this article here. California prison guards failed to notice a man decapitated a a cellmate in a grisly 2019 killing. Um, This happened in Corcoran, California in the men's prison. Happened in 2019, but this article just came out and was published uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and people have been saying, well, Dr. Sample, what's going on with that? And they, they want to get the psychiatric opinion, not so much because we don't hear about prison killings, which is terrible. And I wish that that didn't occur in prisons and people could just serve their time and, and go home. But uh, one of the things that happened with this particular uh, case was the way that it happened. And uh, we'll get into the details of that. But some of the questions that came up were, well, is this person psychotic? If you were the prison doctor, the prison psychiatrist, how would you diagnose him? What would you say he had, you know, and what's going on with that? And we're going to get into the the details of of what happened there, of how this person killed their prison mate, Um, because there is a whole lot of psychology that goes on behind that, a whole lot of psychiatry. And we have to ask ourselves is, you know, one of the things that, that came up was, is he even fit to stand trial for what he did? You know, is he mentally, uh, does he have the capacity to, to stand a trial? Does he have any logic? Is he just so far gone psychiatrically that he's not even making sense? And we're going to get into that, but I want to compare it because to a basic case of psychosis, you know, initially when we hear that case, the, the first thing that a psychiatrist would say is, well, this person was psychotic because we got to look at the way that they killed their cellmate and what they did. But we wanted to kind of take a step back and look at, well, what if one of my family members is psychotic? Am I, am I a danger of being killed like this? Am I a danger of them doing something to me, harming me? And we got to compare and contrast these cases, uh, in terms of in very individual cases where they might carry similar diagnoses or the same diagnoses, but we shouldn't necessarily be scared, um, unless we see certain signs and we got to look at, at what these signs are. Um, a basic case was there was a, a case one time where I remember I had a patient who was in his early 20s. Um, it ended up being a tragic case because he did take his life. But the, what happened with him was he was a 24-year-old man, and he had started getting into drugs. He got into methamphetamine, which if anybody knows anything about methamphetamine, if I'm working at the hospital in the emergency department and somebody shows up, they're brought in by police or they're brought in by their friends, and it looks like they are just out of the out of control, they are just psychotic. They're not thinking clearly. They're having hallucinations. They're telling you about different things going on. They're seeing things. Um, they come in right away. I think, okay, this person has psychosis. Psychosis is just the general diagnosis we give. Uh, when we initially meet somebody before we delineate, do they have psychosis due to a drug use? Do they have specific schizophrenia? Do they have schizophreniform? So somebody comes in and I just know that they are not thinking clearly. They're going to have psychosis. Overall, the treatment's going to be the same. I want to get them an antipsychotic, maybe a benzodiazepine, maybe a mood stabilizer, depending on what symptoms they're manifesting. But 
if somebody's using methamphetamine, it can look very similar. So somebody could have pure schizophrenia where their substantia nigra is just producing a whole lot of dopamine and the brain is naturally doing that organically. It could be genetic, it could be for different reasons, but somebody else could be having the same symptoms because they started using methamphetamine or other drugs that are mind altering. Either way they come in, I'm gonna treat them the same. The question is, what's the source of their psychosis? Well, this young man who I was treating at one point, he was a 24 year old gentleman and he had actually started using methamphetamine in his late teens. So he was probably about 16, 17 uh, when he started using them, started using it. And I think he used it for about two, three years. Uh, we'll say that he, let's just say he started when he was 16, he finished when he was about 19 years old, he stopped using it. At this point now, he's about 24 years old and the family can't understand why he's still psychotic. So I'm treating him and I'm giving him low dose uh, Risperidol at that point, that was working for him. It's an antipsychotic medication, a second generation. Um, so you look out for different things in terms of side effects with that, but it was working well for him. And what that means is different for different people. So for him, it was working out in terms of he was able to stay home. He was able to maybe just kind of hang out for the day, play video games. At one point he was able to go travel to his cousin's house and play video games and actually get out of the house. That was improvement because if we look at where he started, he started after using methamphetamine where he was very, very paranoid. He was afraid that everybody was after him. He was afraid that the policeman who drove by was somehow looking for him or he was going to be in trouble. And you could ask him, well, why do you think that that's the case? Or why do you feel he didn't know that's just what he was experiencing? This was a result of the drug. He had no family history per se of schizophrenia. He had no other, you know, inciting triggers or events. He had just been using methamphetamine and it caused him to have this. Now, other people use methamphetamine and they might flee. They might go to different places. They might end up being homeless if they keep chasing the drug, just like any other drug. If it becomes an addiction, they can lose their job, their money, their family because they're chasing this drug. Some people will take methamphetamine and they'll have a moment of psychosis and, and then that's it. And then the drug wears off and then they're fine. Um, but other people can end up uh, not because they're chasing the drug, lose their money or not because they use it and the, the effect wears off. Some people might use it and then for the rest of their lives end up with psychosis, regardless of whether they're using it or not. This man had been clean probably for about, uh, we'll say about three, four years at the time that I was treating him. Um, and he was still psychotic. The family could not understand that. They couldn't comprehend that there was permanent damage to the brain, not necessarily because they weren't, it's not that they weren't smart. What I say that they couldn't comprehend is because in their hearts, they could not understand how their family member could have used this drug and really messed up their life that, that way. They were, they kept hoping that somebody was going to bring him back to the way he used to be to a certain sense of normalcy. And it's very, very difficult to share with a family that, you know what, this, this could be as good as it gets. This might be it. You know, if he stays on this medication and there's the key, if he stays on this medication, the best we can hope for is that he continues to live a life where he's quiet because the alternate alternative is you stop the medication and then what happens? He's going to go right back to being psychotic. The brain was not cured. It was controlled. So do I have to worry about this person freaking out and killing somebody or doing something along those lines? We're going to talk about more, more about that after the break because we're going to look at this case at the prison and see how is this similar and how is this different from this very straightforward patient that we've been discussing. More after the break. 
All right. Well, welcome back to the clinic here at the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. Um, today, we are talking about psychosis versus demonic possession and how do they look similar? How do they do different? If you were listening to the first part of the show, um, we've been discussing just a basic case of psychosis. Unfortunately, it was a patient I had who started becoming psychotic after using drugs. You know, this is very common. He started using methamphetamine. He His brain was damaged for the rest of his life, uh, even though he was using the drugs in his late teens. Um, by the time I saw him in his early 20s, there was really not much hope that his brain would get much better other than basic hanging out during the day, playing video games, functioning. Maybe he would have been able to hold a job. It would have had to be something very simple. But you were going to see that over time. Um, one of the challenges with that, if anybody has a family member who suffers from psychosis or schizophrenia, um, it can be very, very challenging because we don't always see a whole lot of improvement and the person needs to stay on their medication. One of the bigger challenges is some people do really well on their medication and they say, gosh, I'm doing a lot better. I can hold a job. I'm thinking clearly more common when you have an organic case of schizophrenia when it wasn't caused by drug use. But when it is caused by drug use like methamphetamine, sometimes the brain is so damaged that even with medication, just like in this patient's case, you can barely hope that they will just function, that they will function without symptoms of psychosis or that the symptoms of psychosis will be quieted down. Now, one of the questions is for this patient, how is that different from, say, a demonic possession when I'm working with, say, uh, the diocesan team, the deliverance team, and people say, well, Dr. Sandoval, what's your assessment of this person? What's their case? If there's drugs in the picture, it makes it very, very challenging. Is this person demonically possessed or not? You have to really look at a better history, a spiritual history. What are they doing as far as their actions? What's their thought process on things? Are they very dark? Um, do they have any history of being involved in the occult and accepting the occult or wanting the occult? For the most part, if it gets to that point, which we're going to see a case like this here um, with this article of this gentleman in prison, they usually don't want to get better. And if it, like this guy, we'll just talk about his case because it's, it's a very devastating case uh, that occurred. But so this happened in Corcoran in, in 2019, um, and what occurred was that there was an inmate who killed his cellmate. It's not so much that he killed him. We hear stories sometimes of in prisons, you know, there's gang rivalries or, you know, people are upset with each other. They don't like each other or something happened. They rubbed each other the wrong way, and all of a sudden somebody wants to kill the other person. Um, we hear about that. It's not uncommon. In this particular case, though, some of the comments that have come out is that this is the most gruesome case I have seen in terms of heinous in, in the slain, um, said one of the officers who witnessed this. What had happened was that overnight, apparently, uh, these two men were in their cells and one of the men uh, killed and tortured and actually decapitated his cellmate. Um, and this is not so common. What does it take for somebody to kill and torture and decapitate their cellmate. It says that this, he, that this gentleman was found, um, the, the gentleman's name who did this, his last name was Osuna. Osuna also cut an eye, an ear, a finger, and a part of the lung from Romero's body, so from his, from his cellmate's body, and he was wearing them like a necklace made of body parts. If you notice, what's the big difference here? So, you could say that, well, Dr. Sandoval, your patient that you had before, could he have possibly killed somebody in a, in a fit of psychosis, in a fit of rage, in a fit of hallucinating? Possibly, this, these things can happen. 
but not usually in a ritualistic, sadistic manner. So this person had already had a history. Jamie Osuna, he was 33, says he was housed in a cell with Luis Romero, who was found decapitated and mutilated when staff members conducted morning security checks. He was, like I said before, he had also cut an eye and ear, a finger and a part of the lung from Romero's body. When there is a systematic torture, when there is something along these lines where why are you cutting these body parts in particular or any body part, and then you wear it in a necklace, that's usually a sign of somebody who has trophies, somebody who is much more of a serial type killer, somebody who is much more of a methodical, knows what they're doing, and wants the end to be death, um, but not just because they were upset or they were trying to steal something and somebody else got in their way and they pulled out a gun in a moment of uh, of frustration or impulse or fear. Um, this is much more methodical. You know, this is somebody who stayed there, who took the time to actually decapitate it. It's not easy to cut somebody's head, especially in this particular case. All he had was a homemade weapon that they said was made out of a razor blade and some string. It would have taken a long time to slice through all that tissue, all that skin, all that bone, if he got through the bone, depending on how he approached it. But let me tell you as a physician, what I can tell you is that when you're doing your surgical rounds, you're very careful, yes, with a scalpel, but it takes a long time to cut through the tissue methodically or to even get to it because the tissue can be very tough, right? So in this particular case, this guy knew what he was doing. He, t he, he needed time to do this and then to take out the body parts and then to actually form them into a piece of jewelry that he would wear around his neck. Now you're wondering what is going on with this guy. But if you look at the history and if you look at the article, this is not the first time that he did this. This is not the first time that he has tortured somebody or taken the time to hurt somebody in that way. In fact, that is one of the reasons why he is in the prison to begin with. Um, it says that he had already pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty in November of 2011 to the torture and murder of a young lady in a motel room. Um, at that time, one of the judges said that, uh, this, is, this is a quote, it's not very often that somebody who prosecutes murders for a living that I come across somebody who's just plain evil. And that was from the Kern County District Attorney. Uh, if anybody deserves a, the death penalty, this person does. Um, for the district attorney, you know, they see a lot of people all the time. They get a feeling for different types of criminal activity, be it murder or theft or, you know, whatever it is. And they see a whole lot of people. And for the district attorney to say that it is not very often, even as somebody who prosecutes murderers for a living, you got to think if this person's a murderer, they're going to kill. But usually they kill for a reason. They don't just kill to kill. He says, this is somebody who's just plain evil. For him to say that, um, it's because if you look at the crime, this somebody took joy in this. Somebody killed just to kill. It wasn't a matter of, you know, I killed the person, I achieved my goal. It was a much more ritualistic, how am I approaching this? What is this for? I killed this person and taking the life was the joy itself that I found. It's kind of like in the Bible where Jesus says, if your light is darkness, how deep that darkness will be. If this person's goal was to kill him and all of a sudden he makes a trophy out of it, he won. He found that there was joy in this and he wants to show that off by wearing this around his neck as a source of pride. Now you ask yourself, well, gee, Dr. Sandoval, what's the diagnosis here? You know, there's, we got to look at the whole picture. 
and just knowing parts of the story is not enough. You got to get to know the person. And people say, well, how's that even a person anymore? They're so evil. You know, they've lost their humanity. Believe it or not, people can do the, these heinous things. And if we're going to believe in the mercy of Christ, even they can come back from that and be redeemed if they want to. But this is where it gets challenging because the question we have to ask ourselves is twofold. One, from a psychiatric perspective, how am I approaching this? Well, the most obvious one is obviously psychosis. He's uh, obviously disordered. He can, we can say he doesn't know what he's doing. This is what a psychiatrist will tell you, a scientist will tell you. He doesn't know what he's doing. And in fact, they found him unfit to stand trial because they said he is so far gone mentally. He's so psychotic. And he's already had a history of psychiatric diagnoses from before. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, a whole lot of uh, diagnoses in the spectrum of psychosis. So this is pretty obvious, right? And from a scientific perspective, yes, this guy's not thinking clearly. We're going to diagnose him with schizophrenia. We're going to hopefully treat him with medication. But given the gruesomeness of his trial and probably his mental state where he's not even thinking clearly, then you got to ask yourself, you know, is, is he fit to stand trial or not based on what the scientific and the legal community um, standards, they would say this person probably can't even stand trial because he's not even going to understand the, how bad his crime is. Obviously, the result of, of his actions are going to keep him in jail for forever. And it had shown in the, in the uh, uh, article that he was very happy when he got a life sentence to begin with. He had given the judge a thumbs up. So this person's already uh, in their hearts. This is where it gets challenging now. From, from the psychiatric perspective, easy. You know, it's psychosis. We're going to treat it. And is he competent or not to stand a trial? From a spiritual perspective, because now people say, well, Dr. Samuel, is this guy demonically possessed? Is that is that what we can say? What we can look at is we can look at the evidence. I haven't spoken to him. I've never seen him. I've never met him. So I can't say specifically, um, you know, where he's at in terms of that. However, when we look at this evidence, if you first of all look at his picture, if you look at his picture, he has all these tattoos um, that obviously mean something, but he's tattooed his face. I remember whenever we... Uh, when I was in my residency program and we were studying how do you do a mental examination, a, a mental health examination of somebody. I remember things that stick with me are that some of our professors said, you're doing the examination as soon as you walk in the room. You're doing the examination as soon as you see the person. What are they wearing? How are they standing? How are they sitting? What's their approach to you? What's their personality like? That's how you're doing the psychiatric evaluation. That's something I've always taken with me. You know, when somebody walks in, are they, do they show up to the clinic in their pajamas? That already tells me a lot. Do they show up, you know, professionally dressed? That tells me something else. Is their attitude that they've never met me before and they're already upset? That tells me something else. If I look at this man's picture, you know, and I look at what he has going on, his face is covered with tattoos. Um, so much so that you have to kind of look at each tattoo to see what the meaning is and kind of make out what's going on. But it appears on his forehead, he has a pentagram. That already tells you something. More than likely, is this person, um, is he naive to the occult? Obviously not. He knows what what these tattoos are. He's not going to put tattoos on his body that don't mean something to him. Um, and he's already got a pentagram. He's already branded himself. When it comes to the spiritual world and tattoos, you're, you're really branding yourself. You're telling the world what, who you are and who you belong to and what that means. 
Um, especially if you're going to put on either the name of a demon, something satanic, something demonic, um, you're already opening yourself and saying, Hey, this is the side I'm on because this is what I'm branding myself with. I'm thinking if I ever got a tattoo in my life, um, which I've never really thought of doing, but what kind of tattoo would I get if somebody told me, Hey, Dr. Sandoval, you have to get a tattoo. I would think that, you know, I would hope to get something that would say, well, I'm with God, I'm with Christ. I remember they talked about how sometimes in the Philippines or in, in the um, Asian countries, they would put on tattoos uh, on their backs that said, uh, that had a cross. And it said, if I ever deny Christ uh, with my lips out of fear, um, read this tattoo because this is really the truth. I am with Christ. So ignore what I say, ignore my lie. Um, and I'm branding myself so that even if my mind is in a place where I'm so scared that I might deny my Lord, this proves to, to the world that this is who I'm with. Um, don't trust what I'm saying. It's almost like a Ulysses contract, right? Where it's like before I, in case I'm scared, as I'm of sound mind, I'm putting this tattoo on and I want you to know who I'm with. If this man already has these tattoos, this prisoner already has these tattoos where he's already siding with the devil, obviously he's opened these doors. Then we look at this ritualistic killing Obviously, there is something there where he is very much in tune with the occult, with the satanic, because this is a, a brutal type of bloody sanguinous death that the purpose, the end, was his trophy really to show off to whom? You got to ask yourself, this wasn't to show off to God, it was to show off to the other side. More when we come back from the break on how do we treat this and how do we continue to think about it. All right, and welcome back to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Today, we are talking about what's the difference between just the plain old psychosis, shall we say, and demonic possession. How do we make that distinction? How do we treat? We were talking about a general case of a patient I had had um, who had I had been treating, um, and he was doing okay for himself overall, not the goals that the family had wanted. Um, I had him on medication. He was doing okay as far as he was no longer really experiencing acute psychosis, was not trying to get out of the house to hurt his neighbor, uh, was not as paranoid as he had been before. The medication was keeping the symptoms at bay. And that was good. You know, he had led overall a normal family life, except for he had gotten into drugs. Um, but we got him down to a point where he was uh, very well controlled. The family was not happy about that only because one, culturally, they did not feel that medication was good. They felt that medication was habit-forming, addictive, and that that's why when he stopped his medication, he would get a resurgence of symptoms. Uh, even though you try to explain, no, you know, we can only control the psychosis, it can't cure it. Um, but they felt very frustrated because they said, no, you know, now that means that he's addicted to the medication. So they got to the point on, on that case, sadly, where the family stopped giving him the medication he had a resurgence of symptoms, and he ended up getting, uh, he ended up uh, committing suicide. He jumped off of a uh, parking structure, um, and we weren't sure if it was because he was drunk, if he was high on, on methamphetamine again, or what was going on with him. He hadn't really had a strong history of suicidal ideation, so my guess is he might have stopped the medication and gotten back into doing drugs, and that's why he did that. Um, and then we're contrasting that with the case of, you know, a man in prison who brutally, gruesomely kills his cellmate in a very ritualistic manner. And some of my friends asked me, how can you possibly give two people with such diverse 
um, types of activities in terms of their symptoms, uh, the same diagnosis. How can all of a sudden it just be schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, all within the same? Isn't there a whole different category for this? And psychiatrically speaking, not really. I mean, we look at degrees, right? So it might get, be the same diagnosis, but we look at different degrees, and that's how we also know how do we treat. Is it mild, moderate, severe? Is it, um, you know, what's the level of schizophrenia? What are the hallucinations? What do they entail? If I were to have uh, possibly uh, spoken to this gentleman in prison, I wonder what kind of voices would he have heard? Would he have told me that, uh, you know, the devil told him to kill somebody or that he heard a voice telling him to kill his cellmate in such a way and do it in that fashion? Not very common, I should say, for the general public or shall we, or anybody who is on the outside of the prison-type si- uh, system um, who lives with families and who has psychosis to end up in that place unless you see certain things. So people ask me, well, what's, you know, gosh, if I have a cousin who has schizophrenia, um, is he possibly going to kill his, his family? Is he going to kill me? Uh, would he get involved in this rit- ritualistic type behavior? How do I know I'm scared? What if my sister, I found out that she had done drugs and now she's psychotic. Should I expect that she can, you know, break and all of a sudden she's going to kill the family and do all these things? If you look at the news, those are the stories that make the news. Somebody who, you know, got off their medications and all of a sudden killed their children. Um, somebody who got off their medication and hurt somebody. It really depends on the person. And you got to look at the degree of psychosis that they have. This is why it's imperative that they stay on their medication and that you understand or not you, that, that the patient understands there is no cure. You want to stay on this medication from now on um, until you talk to your doctor. Don't stop it on your own. You can have a resurgence of symptoms of psychosis. You might start hearing voices again. It's not to say, and I wouldn't necessarily worry that they're going to start to kill family members per se. It's so rare. That's why it still makes the news compared to the general population. However, if you start to notice that your family member is not only psychotic and into drugs, but they start tattooing pentagrams, satanic symbols on themselves. They start to get into very dark places. They start to talk about crazy dark things. They start to listen to very dark music that has satanic uh, overt uh, lyrics, things of that nature. Then you got to start to wonder, okay, what's going on? And by wonder, I say that facetiously. Then you notice that they're going down a very, very dark path where now it's unpredictable. I don't know what they're going to do because now it's not like they're acting on their own. You notice that now they're acting in the name of. This is something that as Catholics, we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, when we make the sign of the cross, what do we say? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of. My life is in the name of Christ. I do things for Christ. I, you know, everything I do is, has the end towards Christ. I hope this is where within the Catholic faith, that's what we're doing. That's what we're saying when we make the sign of the cross, when we say in the name of Jesus, when, if you listen to the, the uh, prayers of the mass, the prayers that the priest is speaking, how many times do we invoke, uh, obviously the mass is a prayer to God, the father, uh, where we do, we, we represent the sacrifice of Christ. But how many times do we say in your name, O Lord, in the name of Christ, when we say in their name, that means that what we are doing is to bring them pleasure and to represent things. Now, once somebody starts tattooing diabolic symbols on themselves, once somebody starts listening to diabolic music and that becomes their creed, that is what is being played in their mind, that's what's being inculcated in their hearts, all of a sudden they will do things in the name of not Jesus. So what in what name are you doing things? 
because, and why do we say in the name? It's because we are not islands. As Christ tells us when he says, well, you, you know, you are the branches. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Christ is reminding us we do not exist independently. So when people say, oh, I'm going to do my own will, do what thou wilt. And we say, I am my own person, my own God. That's not how we were made. That's not how we were built. We will, we were built to be symbiotic, if you will. We depend on something and we need to decide what, as a branch, which vine am I going to attach to? Am I going to attach to the vine of life? So that's the choice that we have. Or am I going to attach to the vine of death? The cellmate, obviously this prisoner, was doing things in the name of likely the devil. That's what he is showing us by not only the signs that he has on his forehead and his tattoos, but by the way that he did this. Why such a gruesome murder? Why have to um, decapitate? Why have to uh, take away body parts and wear them as trophies? That is so far gone from um, that which is of the light of Christ. When we look at this and somebody says, well, do you think that this guy can stand a trial? Is that appropriate that he would be deemed to be unfit to stand trial? Technically, according to the rubrics and the standard of care of medicine, of, of psychiatry, yeah, it this guy is not logical in his approach. If he stands trial, does he even understand what's going on? This is where we look at, okay, if somebody is demonically possessed, do they even understand what's happening? Do they, this is where, why do they need an exorcism? Because they might be so overcome, overwhelmed, their mind, their bodies, their actions, their will, um, is it still their own? Their will is always going to be their own. We always have free will. He chose to do this, so we can't deny that part. But is this person even in a place where without the prayers of the church, on their own, they're going to be able to cognizantly understand what's going on? Possibly not. And so this is where the prayers start coming in. This is where I always tell people, if your family does suffer from mental illness, I'm not worried that they're going to fall into demonic possessions, things of that nature necessarily. Um, but I do think that we need to continue to pray for them so that there is a strength of the mind. Not only is the medication important, but also the spiritual part is important. So speaking about medication, how do we treat this? Would I treat this prisoner any different than I would the gentleman I was treating who unfortunately stopped his medication? It all depends. We need to look at the person independently. I can't make that choice based on one article based on never having met the person. Obviously, based on the history, the article gives me a history, and then all of a sudden, if I were to go visit this person, I would have to do my own history, my own assessment, and look at what is going on here. What, where's his mindset at? Is he even willing to get medication? So sometimes you can't force medication on people. In this particular case, you could make an argument for that. However, at the same time, they're going to say, well, he's in a prison, you know, he's contained, he, he's going to have whatever rights they allow there. Um, but my treatment would start with the same. If we're going to talk about medication, we're going to talk about antipsychotics. We're going to talk about first generation, second generation. We're going to talk about, does he need a mood stabilizer? What is it going to take to get him to an even place of his mind? You know, what's it going to take to get him to relax? The next part is, where is his mindset at in general? What is being uh, portrayed? What is he seeing? What does he like to see? Is he just full of violence? Is all he wants to see is black? Um, does he like to wear black clothing? Does he um, like only to see darkness as far as music, videos, books? You know, where is the mind at? That's where we really want to draw the person out of that and start putting beauty, truth in there and having them challenge those thoughts and seeing a different understanding of the world. 
um, because that darkness is really what's going to drive their actions, right? So our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, whatever's in those thoughts is going to affect how we feel. It's going to affect what we do. And so this is where we want to bring up positive uh, things. So we can go to the extreme of somebody who's in a prison like that who might never get better. It just really depends on where they're at. But if we bring it back home, I don't want people to worry that my family member is going to turn into that. I want you to look at what are the signs? What can I do for them? How can I bring them truth? Now, sometimes it's very difficult because we want to convince them of a different reality. If somebody does suffer from psychosis and hears things or believes that the neighbor is going to hurt them, that the uh, airplane flying overhead is because somebody's spying on them, you know, that the police officer is driving by and that's specifically for them, that the newscaster, whatever they heard on the television, that was a message for them directly. They really believe that, you know, this is the world that they're really living in. And one of the biggest challenges with that is if I try to convince them, because it's very frustrating, if on the outside I say, gosh, that is not happening. You know, I realize that that's happening for you and that's very stressful for you, but that's not what's really happening let me tell you, that's not right. That's not the case. The police officer's not there. That can be a source of uh, frustration because if we try to convince them of something like that, they're going to get frustrated. They're going to say, we don't believe them. Why? Because for them, that is really happening. That's really happening in their mind at that time. And to them, it's very real. The voices are real. The delusions are real. They're really living in that space. What I always recommend to my uh, to the family members of anybody suffering from uh, psychosis is you want to tell them that you believe that that's what they see. However, you don't see that. You want to have that balance. You want to be honest with them and say, yeah, I believe that that's what you hear right now. I believe that that's what you're seeing right now. However, I'm not seeing that. And that's not what's happening in my reality. And that must be very frustrating for you, which is why I want to give you some medication, which is why I want you to stay on what the doctor recommended, because I want to bring down that stress as much as possible so you can start to see things from a different perspective, a perspective that's not so stressful, and maybe you're gonna be more calm and see that people aren't after you, you're gonna feel better, and you're not, and then we're not gonna worry about where your brain is headed after that. More when we come back from the break. All right, well, welcome back to the clinic here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio at the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. As always, if our viewers have any questions, comments, or uh, just want to touch base, uh, feel free to contact me. My email is doctor, that's dr.sandovalvmpr at gmail.com. Um, if enough people email me, uh, what I was hoping to do is maybe we can have a Zoom meeting. If anybody has questions in terms of psychosis, schizophrenia, if you have a family member, if you yourself have questions about that, maybe we can do a group meeting where we can uh, discuss it and we can discuss possibly different treatment options, different treatments you might have heard of. I always appreciate when our listeners uh, let me know that they've heard of a particular treatment, especially if it's over-the-counter, uh, naturopathic treatments, things of that nature. For the most part, those aren't usually FDA-approved, so it's important to see what is in them, what ingredients are in them, and what people have said in terms of um, how efficacious they are for them. So it's interesting to see that. The other thing that's important to make sure is that they don't interfere with medication you might already be taking. Um, if you have questions about what's a first-generation antipsychotic, a second-generation antipsychotic, uh, is an injectable form better than the pill form? All these questions come up, and it's really 
patient dependent, person dependent. Um, and again, you can reach me at doctor that dr dot sandoval vmpr at gmail dot com. Um, we're talking about these sad cases of uh, psychosis where we can hopefully get the psychosis under control where where medication might help somebody lead a semi-normal life to whatever capacity they can lead. Um, and we're talking about cases where people go the other extreme and they all of a sudden are in jail. They've obviously gotten involved in some occult practices and maybe the occult practices themselves are what bring up the psychosis. Is it possible for somebody to be perfectly possessed by a demon or even possessed by a demon. Yeah, we've seen cases of that. Not very common, um, but it can occur. Is it possible to somebody who just be oppressed by a demon? Of course. Um, and as Jesse says, we always renounce, rebuke, and uh, refuse any demons um, in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, when we talk about this stuff, we always invoke St. Michael. We want to make sure that we don't get too wrapped up in this because for the most part, when we're helping our family members out, even if they say that they hear the voice of the devil or a negative voice, it's not usually going to be something along those lines in terms of, am I really worried that they all of a sudden need deliverance or things of that nature? Not necessarily. For the majority, the most part, all I would say is support your family member get them to a doctor, get them on the medication that they need, and let's get those symptoms under control. If somebody is already, however, down a path where you notice that they want to start rituals, they start doing drugs, one of the problems with the drugs is, and the cartels will tell you, you know, they've already tried to put hexes and curses on the drugs and the money that's, um, that's, uh, that they use, the millions of dollars, the billions of dollars that cross hands there. All that stuff is cursed and they do prayers and rituals towards uh, the demonic in order to make the drugs even more habit forming, to make the money even more dirty, shall we say, in terms of that world where whatever that they're hoping to achieve, either more money, more people addicted, that's all there. You know, they pray to uh, demonic entities, evil entities like Santa Muerte um, and things of that nature. Um, and so when people start getting into drugs, I'm really cautious as to what's going on with that, what direction are they heading in. But it's very rare to get to this point where all of a sudden you're in the prison and you're doing these ritualistic murders. Things to look out for, though. We want to start praying for our family members right away. We want to start helping them so that they do get out of um, you know, any drug use, if that's what's causing their mental health issues. Or if it's just organic, we want to support them and make sure that they know that they have the love of their families and the support of their doctor and that they continue their medication and that it's not something bad. Uh, some of the things that I've seen where people don't feel supported and then they turn to uh, wherever they do feel support, whether it be from a dark entity or not, uh, is when family members either make fun of them for having mental illness or when they make fun of them for needing to take medication or when they, you know, tell them, make sure you take your pills because you're acting weird. That can be very demeaning. You know, if a person already feels bad because they feel like I don't think clearly and I need medication to help me out. People sometimes already feel like that's a handicap. I don't see it that way, but then that's the world I work in, right? So I'm very supportive of that, and I think it's wonderful. Half the time, we probably don't even know people are taking medication to uh, have evenness of mood and well-being, and yet they're functioning well. People don't want to say that, though, because all of a sudden you become a social pariah, and you know, people make fun of you, or they think that there's something wrong with you already, and then that's a weapon they can use against you, you know, to tell somebody, have you taken your pills? That's really a low blow. It's kind of like when somebody doesn't know something, and you tell them, did you even go to high school? you know, you make them feel bad about something, make them feel less. And that's really not where we want them to be. One of the things that, um, for anybody who's still doing the Holy Hour Challenge, we're now into the last three weeks of love. Um, so we started, I started off praying for love. I started doing um, faith after that, the virtue of hope, 
And now the final, again, the virtue of love. Through these virtues, again, the goal of this is to find peace. And really one of the things that I'm finding is as we're praying for love now, this ties in very nicely with this idea of, you know, is this person demonically possessed? Are they strictly psychotic? What's going on with that? Because one of the things that I realize is when we talk about love and we're there before the Blessed Sacrament, and if we're doing our holy hour, um, one of the things that we're actually asking for is to kind of be possessed by God, by the Holy Spirit, by love. We want to be possessed by that. And and what I mean is not in the way that people are demonically possessed. When there's a demonic possession, it's strictly the entity wants to take over and does not want you to be free at all. They want to be in charge. They want to take over and they're going to tell you what to do. And you are a slave. You're enslaved to that entity. When I find myself with a, with a holy hour now, as I'm learning this, is, I, I think it was such a wonderful exercise because I, I did it with the goal of peace. And the peace that I find is the peace that God is giving me is as now I'm thinking about the virtue of love. It all culminates. I got to have faith in God that he is my God. He is who I've decided as God. I do things in the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's my faith that he will come through. My hope is that we won't, that if I put in my part, we're going to make it to heaven. The doors of heaven are going to be open. It's not going to be easy. It's a sacrifice. It's not going to be without merit. And so we have to earn our way to heaven. But then what's the ultimate goal of heaven? Is quite the opposite of being enslaved. It's about being possessed by love. And when we're possessed by love, we are actually free to love. We are free to be ourselves. We are free to do things because we are following God's will. So if I say I'm going to do things in the name of the Father, I allow myself, I freely allow myself to have my will in line with the Father's will. And then God gives that back to us. It's kind of like the sacrifice of the Eucharist. God gave himself so that we can give that back to him as the sacrificial offering so that we can get into heaven. When we are praying for love, when we are finding, when we're praying for these virtues, all that's going to remain is love. When we are in love, when we're possessed by love, when we're possessed by God, when we have God in our hearts and we allow him to guide us, then we are free because he's going to say, I'm going to show you who you are and I'm going to allow you to be yourself. As long as you're connected with me, I'm going to give you that freedom, but you got to make that choice to be connected to me. Remember, we are not singular entities. We're not islands onto ourselves. We have to be connected to something and we make that choice. If we choose to be connected to the dark side, if we choose to allow evil entities in our life, we are actually becoming enslaved. That's what we become. What we really need to do is become heaven. We need to get into heaven and be possessed by the love of God. That's all that it's going to come down to. So when I look at these cases of somebody whose mind is no longer their own, shall we say, because they're hearing things that aren't there, they're seeing things that aren't there, my biggest concern is not, are they possessed by the devil? Are they not possessed by the devil? Is this demonic or not demonic? That can come out as we treat them. Like I said, the majority of the time, what I'm hoping to do and what I'm hoping that the medication does is it quiets down these thoughts that are taking possession of the brain. It quiets down these thoughts so that the person can regain their free will and make their own choices. It makes it so that these thoughts go away, hopefully completely, or as I say, the coffee shop conversation where if they're taking their medication, the thoughts kind of quiet down. It's like we're sitting in a coffee shop. We can hear the noises, the door opens, the cash machine is running, the coffee machines are running, but they don't bother us. We can have our conversation. Sometimes that's the best that we can hope for if somebody's having these thoughts. The, their psychotic thoughts or delusions just kind of go off to the side and they're not at the forefront. They're not bothering them as much. And that's what I hope 
um, somebody gets to so that they can function in society. I think of that in the same way as I've been doing these holy hours where my medication is if I stand before Christ, all my general worries and concerns that sometimes if I put my hope in what the world wants, the degrees, the titles, things of that nature, if that's what I'm putting my faith and my hope in, then all of a sudden, what am I possessed by? What am I allowing to drive my will? Am I doing things in the name of a degree? Am I doing things in the name of money? Am I doing things in the name of possession? Or am I doing things in the name of following God's will, of leading my family, of making sure that my family's getting to heaven? That's really what it comes down to. This is what I really, what I'm, what I've been learning as I've been doing this. It's been so great. You know, anybody else who's been doing it, feel free to email me. We already had one zoom meeting. If you want to have another meeting, um, go ahead and email me and we can set that up again because quite frankly, it's been, it's been wonderful to be able to find that peace. I got to say that the hardest part is not getting wrapped up in the world and not being possessed by the world in terms of thinking, I don't have time. You know, I'll do it later. I'm so tired. The excuses have come up for me all the time as I keep my journal. You know, gosh, right now I feel really tired. I think that I shouldn't do it right now because I'm going to fall asleep while I do it. So it's probably not the best time to do it. Um, or, you know, oh, I'll, I'll just finish watching the show. I'll be fine afterwards. That's really where I got to stop and ask myself, am I putting God first or am I putting entertainment first or am I putting um, something else before God? And that's where when we ask ourselves, what would drive somebody to fully be possessed like that? It's not, it doesn't happen from one day to the next. You notice that sometimes people will have already acted before. It's the little things that come up, you know, it's little by little. Um, I start to be possessed because I allow myself to gossip a little bit. I allowed myself to say something bad about somebody. I allowed myself to lie a little bit to advance. I allowed myself, you know, all these little things. It's, it's okay. It's not that bad. I keep, you know, um, I, I keep telling people little things to make myself look better. Um, and even if it makes somebody else look worse and then all of a sudden it starts with the little things like that. And then as I move forward, well, it doesn't matter if I steal something, it's not really stealing. I'm just taking it for myself because it was there. And, you know, somebody left that there at the office and ah, maybe I need it. And so we start making these excuses where we think it's not that big a deal, or I'll get to confession about it later, or I'll make up for it later. Those are the things that are going to get our minds to no longer be free to think for ourselves. Sometimes it doesn't have to be, you know, overnight like a drug use or something along those lines. We can look at that in the field of mental health. But as I'm praying, as I'm praying the holy hour, I ask myself, you know, obviously I'm not doing drugs or anything along those lines. But what is it that's driving us? It's driving me to get down that line or that that could be dangerous um, that could all of a sudden make it so that my mind is spiritually psychotic, shall we say, that I'm not thinking clearly for myself. And so ultimately what I have to say is, I say to all my listeners, keep doing your holy hours, keep doing your prayers, have your faith, hope, and love in God, and you'll never have to worry about being possessed, about not being well. If you do suffer from mental illness, there is a lot of hope for you. We will keep that under control. Talk to your doctor, talk to your family members, take your medication, keep it under control, and as long as you feel like you're in a place where you can follow God's will, then we're already ahead of the game. Until next week, thank you for joining me here at the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. I hope that we were able to talk about some interesting things in terms of psychosis and realize that it's not something that can't be treated and it's not something that should be scary. Keep doing your holy hour, keep praying, put your faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ. And until next week, this is Dr. Luis Sandoval signing off.